pastoral and teaching team here at Jericho Ridge. And you know, one of the things about being a pastor is that you get asked to do pastory type things. So 16 years into being a pastor, I'm okay with most all of those things that I get asked to do. But one of them still intrigues me. And that is that as a pastor, you get asked to pray in the most interesting of places. You get asked to pray at the gravesides of people you've never met with families that you may or may not see again. You get asked to pray at the bedsides of people as they ready to pass into eternity. You get to pray in the homes of people who are celebrating new life. You get to pray at the altar when a couple is uh, setting out to either renew or make vows to each other and begin life uh, together. And for me, these are holy and hallowed moments, and it's really a privilege to be asked uh, to pray in those kinds of environments. But one of the most interesting requests comes as a pastor uh, and maybe for you, if you're the only religious person in the room or if you're perceived as a religious person in the room, is the prayer for a meal. So I don't know about you. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about this a lot before, but if you really start to think about it, meals are kind of funny things to pray for compared to other things that we pray about. So I'm not sure if you've ever thought about the verbiage that is usually deployed there. I'm just always curious. Sometimes when I look at what's in front of us on the table and we're asking God to bless it, I don't know if it's any more blessed after we prayed for it than before we prayed for it. Uh, in, in my memory, there's lots of great scenes in movies about this. Do you remember the scene in uh, Talladega Nights? where uh, Ricky Bobby says his mealtime grace to baby Jesus because that's his favorite baby Jesus. Christmas baby Jesus is his favorite baby Jesus. He prays for about five minutes, asks Jesus to bless the KFC and the Doritos, which his sponsors have so graciously provided to him. But for mealtime prayers, I think my personal uh, favorite is from the uh, Meet the Parents trilogy, just probably because it's so awkward Mealtime grace can be an awkward moment, and this awkward moment where son-in-law Greg tries to say a mealtime grace. Uh, let's watch this together. Oh, dear God, thank you. You are such a good God. To us, a, a kind and gentle and accommodating God. And we thank you, O oh sweet, sweet Lord of hosts, for the smorgasbord you have <laughs> so aptly lain at our table this day and each day by day. Day by day, by day. Oh, dear Lord, three things we pray. <laughs> I love Robert De Niro's face in that <laughs> clip. <laughs> but when you stop to think about it, prayer 
can be kind of a funny thing. Is there a right way to pray? Is there a wrong way to pray? Do you have to use certain words to open or close your prayers? Do you have to pray with your eyes open? Do you have to bow your head? All of those kinds of questions come to our minds. But then there's bigger, more philosophical questions about prayer. Questions like, if God knows everything, why am I praying anyways? Questions like, what about prayers that go unanswered? Not just once, not just twice, but over a long period of time. Prayers for healing, prayers for deliverance, whatever it is. And so many other questions. And really, these questions are not new questions to us to wrestle with. They've always existed. In fact, when you think about it, you uh, look and read through the gospel accounts about the life and the ministry of Jesus. There's only one instance that we have recorded where his followers asked him for kind of a master class on something. And that was when they asked him, teach us to pray. Of all the things they could have asked about, they asked about prayer. And so as we close out our fall teaching series in the book of James, it's intriguing to me that this book is chocked full of practical advice for living. It's chocked full of a notion of how do we integrate uh, the ideas and the notions of faith that we have with acting on them in practical ways. The writer James feels that an important place to land the whole conversation is not dealing with personal greetings like happens in some other New Testament letters, but with instructions to us about prayer and praying. And you might remember that James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, is writing to people who are living in very difficult circumstances in the first century. His readers are people who are experiencing trials, both personally and societally. There's unresolved conflict that they have. Interpersonally, you read about it. In the church context, there's issues with people uh, favoring others over each other and neglecting people who are poor. There's individuals that are uh, quick to speak and slow to listen. There's people who are falling into the same traps of temptation and sin over and over and over and over again. There's people who say they love God and they love others with all of their hearts, but they have no demonstrable action in their lives that would back up their verbiage in any way. There's people like Pastor Keith talked about last week who are wrestling with the notion of waiting and how long will God uh, continue to delay And so these are people that are wrestling with all kinds of challenges. And of all the things that James could have chosen to write about to help them understand and address the challenges of their life, he chooses to write to them about prayer. And in his summary comments, he doesn't always answer the questions that you and I might have about the topic, but he does cover three main things about prayer. He tells us when to pray, He tells us how to pray, and he tells us why we should pray. So let's look together uh, in our text at James chapter 5, verses 13 to 18, and I'll be reading uh, from the New Living Translation. James says this in verse 13, Are any of you suffering hardships? Well, you should pray. Are you happy? You should sing praises. Are you sick? Call for the elders of the church to come and pray over you, anointing you with oil in the name of the Lord. And such a prayer offered in faith will heal the sick, and the Lord will make you well, 
and if you have committed any sins, you'll be forgiven. Confess your sins to each other. Pray for each other so that you may be healed. The earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. Elijah was a a human just as we are, and yet when he prayed earnestly that no rain would fall, none fell for three and a half years. And when he prayed again, the sky sent down rain and the earth began to yield its crops. James says a lot about prayer in a few short verses. The first thing that he talks about is when to pray. And if you're taking notes, there's three things underneath each of James's three questions. I'm a pastor, I can't help myself. Um, but uh, the structure of this, uh, I owe much of the structure of this, thinking about this to the um, InterVarsity Press's New Testament commentary series. And the first question that Uh, When we should pray is just answered by James very explicitly right off the back. He says, in times of trouble, that would be a good time to pray. And in our study of James, we've talked about often how the prayers that we pray in times of trouble are not necessarily reflective of the prayers that James pushes us to pray in times of trouble. Our first request often is, God, would you get me out of this difficulty and do it as soon as you could? Whereas in chapter 1, James says we're to pray for endurance in times of affliction, for strength and perseverance. The other danger that happens, I don't know if you find this happens to you, but sometimes when I'm in a high challenge situation in my life, sometimes I actually pray less because I think, you know what, I don't know if God's really listening, if he cares about this situation, like the challenge level has gone way up. And I just don't know if God's hearing me in the same way. And sometimes you get into a habit of thinking, well, maybe God doesn't care about this situation or can't help me. And James pushes us and reminds us as he's closing off his instructions and saying, you know what, when you're in trouble, that's the perfect time to pray. It's exactly the time to pray. And so one expression of this that we have here in the life of Jericho Ridge as a community is our e-prayer team. And uh, the e-prayer team is a group of people that said, I would like to pray for things when they come up. I would, if there's people that want prayer, I want to pray for them. And sometimes when we get into trouble, we think to ourselves, I don't know if other people would really want to pray with me about this. Like, I'll just pray about it myself. Don't worry about it. But there are people who would love to pray and stand with you in that time. Of trouble. And so this is a great resource for you, and I want you to make a note of this, is that if you would like others to pray with you, it's really easy. You just email prayer at jerichoridge.com, and that's all you need to do. Just email that, put whatever the context of your request in there, and then that'll get sent out to people who are trusted. It'll get sent out to people who want to receive that email. And if you want to be one of those people, that uh, prays for people, then talk to Pastor Keith or Katie Kwan. They'll make sure you get on that list. And that's about 60 people or so. Gets uh, distributed to the staff team, gets distributed to the elders team, gets distributed to people who've said, I want to pray for people in their time of need and challenge. It doesn't have to be a big deal. If you're going for an interview or something like that, let us know. We would love to stand with you and pray in that time. And that's the other second thing that James says is pray in a time of happiness. Are any of you happy 
He says, sing praises. Remember, he's talking about prayer here still. And many of the songs that we sing are drawn directly from the words and the text of Scripture. And they express our collective joy, our collective thanksgiving to God for who he is, for what he's done in our lives. They call to mind all of the reasons for us to celebrate the amazing gifts that God's given to us, whether it's um, sunshine or nature, or they call us to pray for the nations like we were doing in pre-gathering prayer this morning. There's lots of songs that are connected with our expression of prayer. And oftentimes, these are the songs that we sing at the beginning of the gathering. And they're up-tempo, or they start, because they set our hearts and our minds on God in the right way, and they set our tone for our time together. And I love the fact that our worship leaders, worship and song leaders and teams work really hard at that. They're uh, in contact with whoever's teaching throughout the week, and they're, they're shaping the uh, these songs and saying, is this kind of fit with what we're talking about this morning? And then the teams are getting together and rehearsing, praying, preparing their own hearts uh, in ways that would be able to help facilitate and direct that experience for the rest of us. But I'm going to be a bit directive with you for a minute here, church. So if you're new or visiting with us this morning, just tune out for a couple of minutes. Pay no attention to what I'm going to say. Check your Facebook status or something. Um, But on Sunday mornings in our gatherings, I love the fact that when someone is praying from the front, that there's a good degree of respect that is afforded to that. You know, it gets a little quiet in here, and people are generally respectful of the fact that someone is praying from the front. Both, uh, I think, a respect for the person on the mic as well as the fact that we're praying and we're talking to God. So here's the deal about that. When a person, the same directional communication that's happening when Pastor Keith stands up here and prays is the same thing that's happening directionally when Dustin and the team stand up and lead us in worship. And so one of the challenges that I want you to consider is why would it not be okay to interrupt Pastor Keith when he's praying, but it would be fine to just interrupt Dustin and the team while they're leading us in sung prayers by just having a loud conversation that would disrupt people around you or walking in at any time that would be uh, convenient for you. You see, we start our sung prayer at 10.30 on Sunday mornings, sharp, every Sunday. And when you wander in kind of whenever it's convenient for you, it's a little disrespectful to the team that's leading us in sung prayer. And so... I'm going to ask you to just up the respect game a little bit and work a little bit harder at getting here in getting your own heart in a place because that's a deal with kids, right? Like we have kids. We know how this goes. You come in and you're all flustery and worried and then the kids, you're like, kids, you got to be quiet. I'm trying to engage with this worship now and now I can't focus on anything because like I wish you should have had your snack before we got here, like all of this stuff, right? So I get it. I get it. But there's a a way of just being here and getting your heart ready in the space so that when sung prayer begins in worship, that you're ready to kind of move and engage with that. And I think that shows respect to your fellow prayers around you by making the effort to be here on that time. And here's the deal. It's really not that early, 1030. You can do it. You can do it. Uh, And so when you come in late, just be mindful of the fact that other people are engaged in worship. Because, you know, there's weeks that that happens, right? 
So I'm just asking to up the respect game on that regard for those around you. All right, I'm finished with my soapbox on that. Um, and we'll move on to the next thing. So number three, under when to pray. James says, pray when you're in times of trouble. Pray in times of happiness and celebration. Pray when you are sick, in times of sickness. He says in verse 14, 15, call the elders of the church and they'll pray for you. Now, what is James on about here in this business about calling the elders for the church of the church to pray for you? Is James saying that when you have the flu, instead of going to the doctor, you should call Pastor Keith and have him come and pray for you or call Karen or call Ralph or call David or call Tyler. Just because, and the other question that would be a logical one, I think, from the text is, just because they have the title of an elder in the life of a faith community, does that somehow imply in some way that God hears their prayers more than other people's prayers? I don't think that's what James is getting at in these verses. Remember in, in chapter one, what he was talking about, about prayer, he was talking about prayers offered in faith and belief, not like a, a prayer and then doubting, like a wave that's tossed by the wind. Remember that metaphor that he used. And prayer is an expression for James of expectant and confident faith. And so the fact that a sick person would make an effort, not just to themselves pray, but actually invite other people into that experience to pray for and with them, is an expression of confident faith put into action in a concrete way. And it's also an expression of unity and submission in the life of the church. One commentator on the text says it this way, James envisions that God has given a spiritual power available to the church that's exercised through the elders and those in leadership. That's not to diminish the importance of personal prayer by each Christian. It's rather to affirm the value of agreement together in prayer by the church, for Jesus promised that agreement among Christians would unleash the power of answered prayer. Matthew chapter 18 talks about this. John chapter 15, when you agree together in my name. And so this is another expression for James of this, of inviting other people into your life in a time of sickness or trouble, that you would have the faith to believe then agree together with other people. And sometimes, the great thing about this is sometimes when I'm praying about something, you know, if I'm really honest, I don't know if I have the faith to ask God for it in the way that I feel challenged to. And so by inviting other people into that, it can create a wonderful and powerful agreement that can be exercised and their faith can actually help me to exercise faith in this way. And for us here at Jericho, that's why we have prayer response on a Sunday morning to allow other people into that process so they can agree together with you in the prayers that you are offering up to the Lord. And so take advantage of that. We have it every weekend here. And there's people that are trained, that are ready to help you and stand in agreement with you, whether it's about sickness, whether it's about challenge, whatever it's going on in your life or something to celebrate. But these aren't the most radical things that James says to us about prayer. Let's keep looking in James 5, verse 16. Because James not only says to us when to pray, but he also talks to us about how to go about praying. 
So the first thing James says is connected with the other pieces that we just looked at, and that is that James is big on the context of prayer, of praying together in community. But the specific instructions that he gives are a little bit jarring for us to hear. He says that in the context of community, James invites us to confess our sins to one another. So not just to God, but to a trusted and wise person in the life of the community. So the first time I read this scripture, I remember thinking to myself, okay, James, you've lost me on this one. I was with you on praying when I'm in trouble. I was with you when we were talking about praying when I'm happy. I was with you about praying in times of sickness. But now, confessing my sins to other people in public, my deepest and darkest things, uh, you lost me on that one, James. No thank you. But remember the trajectory that James has taken us on here. This is a community to whom he's writing that's wrestling with verbal attacks on each other publicly in chapter 3, verse 9. This is a group of people that's been fighting with each other, slandering each other, judging one another. He spends most of chapter 4 talking on that. And James has pushed them and pushed them and pushed them and said, you know, in the community here, you guys have got to get this under control. There's a level of hostility and antagonism that's not rooted in the way in which a community lives out its life together. And so James is pushing them continuously on this until he gets to this point that says, if there's unres- these issues remain unresolved, it's not going to be conducive for you go to go into a public environment praying for each other. You have to get to the place where that's dealt with before you come into the community. And so James is describing relationships that are so transformed and so authentic that instead of all the things that used to prevail, there's a common recognition of our need for and experience of God's forgiveness and grace in our lives. Because there's a common understanding that's expressed in prayer that invites other people into our lives to the places where they know our weaknesses and sins, and they can help hold us accountable to that. And so James isn't necessarily talking here about, you know, in a, in a large gathering. He's talking about these relationships that would be developing in prayer. I love the way uh, one of contemporary spiritual writers, Dallas Willard, says about this and the discipline of confession. Confession, Willard says, helps us to avoid sin. Proverbs 28, 13 says, the person who conceals their sins does not prosper, but whoever confesses them finds mercy and renounces them finds mercy. It's said that confession is good for the soul, but bad for the reputation. And a bad reputation might make life more difficult for those close to us. And we know this, but closeness and confession force out evil doing. Nothing is more supportive of right behavior than open truth, Willard says. The bearing of your soul to a mature Christian friend or a qualified person enables these friends to pray for specific challenges and problems that 
are going to trip you up. And do this in a way that's most helpful and most redemptive to you as the one who is confessing. Confession makes deep fellowship and community possible. And Willard goes on to wonder if the lack of confession in appropriate ways actually might explain the superficial quality found in some churches and associations. Nothing is more supportive of right behavior than open truth. Who knows you so deeply in your life that they can share, you can share the parts, those deep parts of who you are and invite them into that process of shaping your growth in prayer by hearing your confession. Now, obviously, this does not mean that we go around blurting out everything that's on our minds and our hearts all of the time to everyone that we meet. That's not what James is saying. The notion of being authentic all the time with everyone is not what he's driving at. There's appropriate and healthy disclosure and confession uh, that there is a type of confession that can be damaging both to the confessor and the confessee. But what James is inviting us to consider here is entrusting someone with the deepest parts of our lives. And that when we do that in community, there's a shared duty of care for our soul that brings about a deeper possibility of wholeness. Relationally, spiritually, and even physically. Appropriately enacted, confession is good for the soul. It is good for the body. It is good for keeping us on track. In our uh, men's groups here at Jericho, in four quarters as an example, one of the things that we explore there is just saying how your week's going and the things that you're wrestling with. As an act of confession and inviting the other people in that group who know you well and get to know you better over time to hold you accountable to that. And to say, this is what I need to work on in my life. These are the areas in which I need to grow. That's a process of confession. In my four quarters group, we have confession uh, built into the package. And sometimes it's awkward. Sometimes we push each other and go, I don't know if you're telling me the truth about that. Let's talk about that a little bit more. How are you really feeling about that? How are you really thinking about that? But that level of depth and that level of health allows for confession to happen and us to hold each other accountable. And it has and continues to result not only in healing and growth, but also in a shared of accountability because then I'm less likely in some senses to walk into sin and fall into temptation if I think, you know what, I could do that, but I'm just going to have to talk about it with my quarters group. So I'll probably just avoid that altogether. And that's the type of confession that James is after here. A level of community and connectedness that can say, you know what, does this person know me well enough to be able to challenge me or to be able to receive a confession from me? And it results in healing and health for both of us. And so that's what James is driving at with the how to pray. It's making sure that in rightly ordered relationships, we will be helped in our prayers if there is that level of relational depth. And that takes risk. That takes time. 
that takes uh, a lot of exploration and, and some of you have been in situations where you've explored that and it's not gone well for you. People have gossiped about things that you've said in prayer environments. And so it's tough. But getting to that place of praying together for the real issues of your life could be so incredibly powerful and liberating. It's worth the risk and the effort when it's done well. The second aspect that James talks about of how to pray, how to pray in community, but also comes to us in verse 15, and that is we need to pray and offer a prayer in faith. Now, this is the uh, primary theme that James has steered us toward through the whole context of the whole book of faith. What would it look to live our lives in faith and live out that in acted ways, not just say that we have faith? And so for James, praying in faith is an active thing, not a passive thing. For James, there's no magic formula for prayer. There's no special words that will stir up faith. James reminds us that praying in faith requires a sense of conviction that God hears my prayer and also a keen sense of listening to the Holy Spirit so that I can walk out any obedience that God invites me to partner with him in and puts in my heart to do. So for James, prayer is active. Faith is active, not passive, and not simply just a, oh yeah, no, I think I, I, think I trust God on that one. It's seeing what it would look like to live that out in a more fully orbed way. So we pray how to pray, pray in community, pray in faith. And the third reminder on how we should pray also comes to us in verse 15, and that is to pray in a spirit of repentance. Pray in a spirit of repentance. A few pages over from James, 1 Peter is going to talk about that if there's relational division and conflict, and sin that exists in our lives, our prayers can be hindered by that. And so when we pray, we need to ask God to invite and search our hearts and ask God if there's any active things going on in our lives, ways in which we are living or thinking that would be out of step or out of keeping with what it is that he's invited us to do. And if those are the case, to actually bring those to the table and say to God, God, I need to own that. I want to say that I'm sorry for that. I want to invite your forgiveness, and I want to invite both relational and spiritual healing into my life. Because nothing blocks or prevents me from praying like broken relationships, either vertically with God or horizontally with others. If I'm not in right relationship with God, I find it difficult to approach him. That's why the discipline of confession is so healthy and helpful. And some spiritual writers would invite us to, to begin our prayers with the spirit of repentance and confession before we go anywhere else in our prayers. But also, this plays itself out horizontally. If I'm not in right relationship with another person in a group that I'm praying with or another person, I find it difficult to pray with them or for them. I can't have an effective prayer life if I'm not willing to walk in repentance and right relationships with others. 
I harbor things against another person, I can't pray for or with them authentically. Jesus talks about this when he talks about, you know, you're on your way to worship in the temple of Jerusalem in their context at the altar and you're reminded that you have something that is not right relationally with a brother or with a sister. Jesus says, leave your gift at the altar. Go make it right first and then come and make sure that you're engaged in worship and in prayer. And make sure you do whatever you need to do. Humble yourself and make it right in repentance. We've had wonderful examples uh, in, in the last month and a bit here at, at Jericho Ridge where in public ways people have stood up and said, you know, I'm sorry if I've hurt you in any way. And I want to own that and I want to be reconciled in right ways to the community of faith. Both Danny and Daniel came and asked for forgiveness from the community and it's been granted to them. And it took a lot of courage for them to do that, to be able to walk in repentance and in humility. But repentance opens the doorway for relational and spiritual healing to occur. And that's the vision that James is painting for us here, is that in order to pray authentically in community, in faith, I need to also be mindful of praying in repentance. And this is where James lands the plane. He answers some of the, the questions that we have, not only about when to pray and how to pray, but also why pray. Why should we pray? In some ways, that's the foundational question. And he answers it last. He says, why should we pray? Well, he, he begins to talk about the results of prayer. Prayer makes the sick person well. Prayer provides forgiveness. Prayer allows the, allows the power and mercy of God to flow into our life. Pray for each other so that, and then he goes on to fill in the blanks. You may be healed. Now, you and I may not understand everything about prayer. We may feel awkward when we pray. But we are given to understand from the scriptures that prayer is connected with results in some wonderful ways. Prayer can build our faith. Prayer can bring healing to relationships or physical things. Prayer releases forgiveness in our lives. And we want some of these things, don't we? Prayer is the place where we come to ask God and receive these things from the Lord. Not in a sense of that this is some kind of magic potion or incantation that if I say the right things, I don't mess it up, that somehow God will give me what I want or need. Simply to say that in prayer, you and I are invited into a place where we listen to God, where God hears us, and we're invited to partner and receive from him the strength to endure hardships. We're invited to experience the joy of God in our lives that bubbles over, the ability to control our tongues, which James talked about, the ability to resist temptation, the ability to patiently wait for his coming. You and I may not understand all of the things that there is to understand about prayer, but one thing that we do want to understand is that prayer changes us in significant ways. I like what C.S. Lewis says. He says this, I pray because I can't help myself, and I also pray because I'm helpless. I pray because the need flows out of me all the time, waking or sleeping. I pray because it does not change God, it changes me. Prayer changes us in ways that I don't even know if we fully understand. 
What part of your life do you need or want God to change? What part of your life do you want God to intervene in? Bring it to other people. Ask them to join you in that prayer. Because the principle that James wants to leave with us is simple. The results and the principle is, he says in one kind of pithy little sentence, the earnest prayer of a righteous person has great power and produces wonderful results. James is reminding us, he's talked about anointing uh, with oil here for healing. It's not the oil that brings the healing. It's not the elders praying for a sick person that made them well. It's not even the righteousness or piety of a person that shakes heaven and moves earth in prayer. James simply says that the authority and the power and the strength and the mercy and the grace are all resident in the God to whom we pray. He is powerful. He is the one that is producing and ordering the results of our prayers. Our responsibility is to maintain right relationships with him and with others and to pray earnestly. The great power and the wonderful results, that's up to God. That's the part that he controls. The right relationships and the activation of being in prayer, being a person of prayer, those are the things that I'm invited into and that you're invited into. But the great power and wonderful results are up to God. And as if to underscore this with an example, James points to biblical history, to the character and the actions of one of the great prayers of the Old Testament, the prophet Elijah. Elijah is the one whom, if you remember in 1 Kings 16 to 18, he prayed and God sent ravens every day to bring him food by a brook that did not dry up for years when the whole rest of the country experienced crippling drought. This is the man who prayed and a widow received back from the dead her son who was dead. And Elijah prayed for him and God brought him back to life. This is the one who he went and he prayed that the widow of Zarephath's jar of oil would not run out until the famine was lifted and it kept producing and she and her son lived as a result of his prayer of faith. And the story specifically that James reminds us of is a story where Elijah had an encounter with the king of his day and he prayed and said, all right, king, if that's the way you want to act, then it's not going to rain here until you get your act together. And it didn't rain for three and a half years in Israel. And then at the end of that three and a half years, Elijah goes up to Mount Carmel and has a confrontation with the prophets of Baal. And they spend all day praying. They've got their language just right. They've got their formulas all good for prayer. And nothing happens. And Elijah prays and simply says, God, I'm asking that you would demonstrate your power in this situation. And fire falls from heaven and consumes the whole sacrifice. The altar dries up the water in the trench. And God answers Elijah 
dramatically. And then he prays for it to rain. And it doesn't just start raining right away. He kneels down and there's nothing. He sends his servant, go check, see if it's raining. No rain yet. Go check again, go check again. Finally, he sees a rain cloud the size of a person's hand. And Elijah says, all right, it's gonna thunder. Three and a half years, no rain, let's get ready. We better start running down the mountain. Elijah, when he prayed, stuff happened. And so as an example of prayer, we might think that, oh yeah, this Elijah guy, he had some real special kind of status. But James reminds us when the first thing he says about Elijah isn't like, think of all the amazing prayers he prayed. He says, you know what, Elijah? Yeah, he was a human being just like you. He, the miracles that God did as a result of Elijah's prayers were just that. They weren't as a result of Elijah having, having some kind of superhuman powers. They were a result of Elijah connecting with God and God moving in power to answer his prayers. But here's the problem that comes up for you and I when we think about people like Elijah. Sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, I could never pray like Elijah prayed. Or I could never pray like Gary Stevenson prays. You know, Gary uses all the right words. I mean, listen to his eloquence. Like, think about his life. He's a missionary. Like, how close to God must he be? I mean, my life's nowhere near that level of super spirituality. I'll have to work for years before I get my life together where I could pray like so-and-so. That whole prayer thing, sometimes we think to ourselves, oh, if that's the bar, righteous living and powerful and effective prayers, yeah, I'm going to give up before I even start. I'm not even going to try. And that's why I think James specifically mentions Elijah and not Jesus as his example for us. Because if he mentions Jesus, we'd be like, yeah, okay, well, he's the son of God. So, of course, when he prayed, things happen. Says Elijah, yeah, there was nothing special about Elijah. Elijah was a human being like you. And when he prayed, God responded. When you pray, God will respond. He was a real person who prayed real prayers with a confident faith that a real God would hear and answer. James is saying to you and I, you know what? If a man can pray so earnestly that God shuts the heavens for three and a half years, surely you and I could pray with enough faith to receive forgiveness of sins. Maybe you and I could Pray with enough faith to receive healing. Elijah shows us both the great expectations but also the common availability of prayer. And one of the things as we wrap up our series in James and move into Advent next weekend is just to ask you and I to examine our own prayer lives. What areas do you want to grow in when it comes to praying? Maybe for you, you're paralyzed by fear. You think, I don't want to pray. Certainly, I would never pray in public. Someone asked me for a mealtime grace. Well, I'll pass it off as quick as I can to the next person in the room. Maybe you fear that you'll sound stupid, so you hold back. Maybe you feel like, well, I, don't, I won't even know what I should say, and other people will judge me for that. Maybe you have been hurt before by gossip, so you hold back from sharing your needs with others. All of us have room or an area that we want to grow in in our prayer life. What is that for you? Why not make a commitment to right now, in this moment, beginning to grow in that area 
by stepping out in faith. Maybe you want to write your prayer down. Maybe you want to go to the prayer team and you've been thinking about it for months and months and months and you just keep staying and riveted in your seat. Maybe today's the day for you. You say, you know what? I want somebody else to pray with me about this particular thing that's going on in my life. The worship and song team is going to come and they're going to lead us in two prayers which we will sing. And as we sing, I want you to think about an area in your own life that you've been wrestling with and that you want to lift up to God in prayer. And then I want you to just walk that out. Pray with someone around you. Maybe there's someone who knows you well. Maybe you feel compelled in this time to pray for someone else and you got to get up and walk all the way across to another section and pray with that person or pray with someone around you. Maybe you want to pray uh, with the team. Pastor Keith will be available over at this side and Deb Jarvis and I will be available over on this side. And if people are praying with all of us, then someone else will come up and make themselves available for you and you can pray with them. We'd invite you to do that. And after these two songs, then we're going to close together uh, by praying the Lord's Prayer, which he taught us to pray.